everyone listening knows who Google is. Maybe you found this podcast through them. They're one of the most innovative and era-defining companies in the world. And today, we have two of their top engineering leaders, Hiram Wright and Titus Winters, sharing their lessons learned from programming at Google. Let's dive in. This episode is sponsored by Linear B. Give your dev team the power to improve with team-based metrics, high-risk code alerts, and the world's first project board based on real-time Git activity. Sign up free at LinearB.io. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lines, and today we are talking to Hiram Wright and Titus Winters. Hey, guys, thanks for joining the pod today. Thanks for having us. Great. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Awesome to have you both. So I want to give our audience some context before we dive into your book, which is a great book. And let's start out with Hiram. So Hiram, you're semi-famous for being Hiram of Hiram's Law, which we'll get into a bit later. And your focus at Google is on large-scale code change tools and infrastructure. Can you give us a quick kind of high level of what that actually means? Sure. So Google has hundreds of millions of lines of software, source code, and as a strategic goal, we want to make sure that is uh, maintainable, that it's fresh, that we can sustain changes that we need to make to that code base, whether it's a business reason or a technical reason, a new library standard, new library, or new language standard, new libraries, whatever it might be. We want to be able to evolve our software to meet those needs. And so to do so, we've developed a number of tools to make that happen at scale. And that's a lot of what I do is help the people that are developing those tools do so to understand what are the needs of the business is going to have in terms of being able to evolve software longer term, try to think about new strategies for doing that and just make it so that we don't have any hidden corners of our code base that people are afraid to touch. We want to make sure that we can always evolve our source code to make to account for changes in the needs of the business. Okay, awesome. That sounds like a really Great job. And Titus, I read somewhere that you're in charge of something like 250 million lines of code. Over 12,000 developers uh, work on this code. What does your role as a senior staff engineer uh, look like at a high level? I don't know. Someone was going to tell me that someday. No, but largely I have my fingers in most things that are that pertain to how people write C plus code at Google. Uh, so like the teams that I directly manage maintain Absale and our internal common libraries, like Google tests, things like that. Uh, so a lot of the nuts and bolts, I describe it as if all of Google's code base was a book. My teams are the ones that provide nouns and verbs. We are the nuts. But I also work as one of the C++ style arbiters. So I produce the C++ style guide that Google uses and that we provide an external drop of. So I control like the way that you like format that, the way that you like what features are allowed, which features are encouraged. I have my fingers in a lot of the like best practices, the tips of the week, things that aren't law, like the style guide, but just this is probably what you want to do unless you have a really good reason otherwise. Uh, a lot of education, training. So it really runs the gamut from the very, very low level of maintaining the mutexes and the data structures all the way up to the very people-centric, like we need to answer several questions a day on Hey, why is this crashing? Hey, can you help me debug this? Hey, I need to understand this better. And that's so we we're the care and feeding for a quarter of a billion lines of C plus code and all of the engineers that go into that. 
Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, being responsible for a quarter of a billion anythings is uh, really (laughs) a really cool uh, job as well. So the book we're talking about today is commonly referred to as the Flamingo book, but actually titled Software Engineering at Google, Lessons Learned from Programming Over Time. So Hiram, would you mind giving us a quick intro to the book and how it came to be? Sure. So we have been talking, and by we, Titus and I and other people at Google, we've been talking about our internal development process externally for a long time. You can go find conference docs on YouTube. You can go find a lot of things like that. And But we kept finding ourselves saying the same things over and over again and talking to an audience that was just skeptical about the, the way that these things actually worked in practice and you know, how we built, would, would apply large-scale changes across our entire code base in some like reasonable amount of time or... How does the build system work in a, an organization like Google? Things like that. I it, it, What actually ended up happening is I left Google for a little bit, came back. And when I came back, I didn't have anything to work on. Titus is like, hey, I have this. We should write a book. And I'm like, hey, it sounds good for me, to me. I don't you know, know how hard that will be. So like, why not? It turned out to be much harder than we expected. And we ended up crowdsourcing much of the content. Like, We are the domain experts here. And we ended up finding people within the company who are the domain experts and working with them to help get much of the content. So most of the words aren't actually written by us. We did write several chapters, but we helped make sure that it speaks with a common voice and did a bunch of the editing along with Tom Mantrek, who's also, who really did a lot of the technical writing and, and editing work. We'll make sure he gets some credit here. And really this gives us the opportunity to have a reference that we can then talk about. What is it that makes software engineering at Google different than lots of other organizations? And it's not that we're trying to convince people that they need to do it the way we do it. It's more just, here is the problems we have faced, and here is how we have chosen to solve those problems. And you may choose to solve them differently, but you will probably encounter similar problems, and hopefully our solutions can help you as you, you know, chart a path through that problem space in your own organization. Yeah, that, I, go ahead. I, yeah, I, I like to describe it by analogy. They say Lewis and Clark explored the Louisiana Purchase by which we mean they took one path out and one path back, which is not exactly mapping, but in a very similar way, like there's not a lot of organizations that have ever operated at this scale. And so we're trying to give them exploration trip report map. Hey, there's mountains here. Did you know? And it's going to be other people are going to come along later and fill in some of the gaps, but hopefully we can at least point out where the Rockies are and hopefully people find that useful. Yeah, for sure. There's so much knowledge to be shared. And Google is always, you think of it as like the biggest scale on the planet, or maybe got challenges that not many other humans on the planet have faced yet, but might face soon. So you're going to get a lot of popularity there. I definitely want to dive into the three main themes in the first chapter, the first being time. So Titus, can you talk to us about the role of time in relation to software? My favorite quote, which I think I didn't actually find this quote until I had started writing the the opening chapter, is Dave Parnas. It's probably Dave Parnas. This might be apocryphal. Back in the 70s said, software engineering is the multi-person development of multi-version programs. And that means that for 50 years, we've known that this is about teamwork and time. And I think that's very wise. My sort of pithy version of this was software engineering is programming integrated over time. There's a dimensionality difference in there that I think is really critical for people to realize. And schools, CS programs, all of this, we're training you as a programmer, and that's great. 
but there's a whole other dimension that's going to pop up here. Like squares are not cubes. Velocity is not acceleration. Software engineering is not programming. They're related. They have a similar shape to them, depending on how you squint. But like all of the hard stuff comes because of time. Like version skew, backwards compatibility, like issues with data storage, schema evolution, right? Dependency management, upgrades, all of the things that are actually the really hard stuff, they all have one root cause. Time is the enemy. And so the more that you can really be aware of that, the more that you can admit that, and the more that you can find ways to make your things time invariant and take that dimension of complexity out of the problem, like the better off you're going to be. But if you're just ignoring it, then you're going to have a problem, especially if your code starts getting into the point where it's going to last three, five, 10 years. You could probably get away with not worrying about upgrades and change in time too much if you're going to throw it away in a year, two years, three years, but a whole lot longer than that. And you need a different approach. And I didn't see a lot of people talking about that fact. So time underpins everything. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And especially for new, let's say, programmers in, in school, it's really hard to, I think, simulate time yeah. or experience. Yeah. How do you experience time without actually doing that? So right. I assume with this book, maybe you can read a little bit if you're more of a junior can get some of that uh, knowledge. I know Hiram's Law plays into this time pillar. Mm -hmm. Hiram, can you talk about what Hiram's law is, how it came to be, and, and what it means in regards to time? I can do that. Yes, certainly. So I, I'm laughing because Titus is smiling here because he's going to know that I'm going to blame him for much of this. So Hiram's law is the observation that given enough users of your program, system, API, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter what you actually promise in the documented contract all observable behaviors of the system will be dependent on by somebody. And the classic example of this is if you have a dictionary data structure and you're iterating through the things in that data structure and you expect them to come out in a certain order. Now, from a purely theoretical perspective, a dictionary doesn't keep things in a ordered format, right? In a practical perspective, it has to order things somehow. And oftentimes it does so uh, consistently. And so program, you can write programs that depend upon that ordering and so that then constrains the author of that data structure in their ability to evolve it in a different way. And that's really what this comes down to. I will point out that number one, I did not name it. I, I will blame Titus for naming it. And number two, the idea isn't actually, in some senses, it's not actually that new, um, or at least it doesn't feel that way. Uh, I just put it in a succinct format and then that kind of, you know, Titus gave it a name and now people can call this idea a thing. I've been rereading re uh, the Mythical Man Month and Brooks talks about this concept several times 50 years ago. So this is not a, a novel thing from that perspective. But really, it, with, within Google, it, it came up because we were trying to evolve parts of our, of our system. And I kept running into places where somebody was depending upon a certain part of the system, which you would not think anyone should depend on. I changed the comments in a header file, and all of a sudden, tests start breaking somewhere. And you think, wait a minute. Like that doesn't change the parse tree. It doesn't change anything about the, the software. Like why would tests start? It turns out that people were depending upon the line numbers that were emitted by log messages. And if you change comments and you add lines there, it will throw off the line numbers and you know, tests will start breaking because that is an observable behavior of the system. And so that, that kind of started off as an internal rant and then we refined some of the ideas and then it, it became a pithy saying and now it has its own websites. That's the, the evolutionary process of Hiram's Law. 
That's awesome. And Titus, that's really cool that kind of you're the one that said, hey, we should name this Hiram and we should name it Hiram's Law. Any you know, perspective from you of like why you wanted to get that knowledge or that law out there to the world? Like, I, I totally agree with what Hiram said. This is not novel. Like I've had plenty of old timers and software engineering profs and stuff say, oh, these Googlers think they're inventing new stuff. Like, no, I'm well aware that we're not inventing new stuff, but it's also really important to have shorthand for concepts so that you can incorporate that in discussion and not have to go back and re-explain and argue over terminology and stuff. And so I think a lot of the, like one, it's incredibly true. And I would actually classify it as, you know, a, a like thermodynamic level truth of software engineering. But at the same time too, the important part is give it a name so that we like can agree on the terminology and conceptualize, put it in a box, build on it, move on. I read it. I found it to be a great piece of knowledge. Like I'm, let's say I'm building an interface or an API, just expect it's going to be used in all these different ways. If you go in blind and say, Hey, I built this interface. This is the law that could, that mindset could get you in trouble down the road. I had a nice takeaway from it. Thanks guys for putting it out there. The, and, the other, the other the point on that, if I may interject, is that just because a law exists does not, or we call it a law, does not mean there aren't things you can do to mitigate its effects, right? So the law of gravity is a thing, and yet we fly airplanes, right? That look to defy gravity in some senses. And it's not really, it's like we're mitigating the effect of gravity for using some other knowledge we know about. And with Hiram's law, if you're building an API and you expect the users will abuse it in ways that you don't know, you can take steps to like hide behavior, to do better encapsulation, right? To understand that even if you document certain guarantees in your API that, or your system, right? I'm using API very generally here, that you can build your system in such a way that fewer behaviors are exposed and thus fewer people can depend upon behavior inadvertently, right? And just having that conscious awareness will help you build better software. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great insight and great point there. Titus, before we move on, I was hoping you could repeat for our audience something that really kind of stuck with me during my research for the episode. What is the real goal of software engineering? The real goal, like, it's not to sit down and write code. It's to solve problems. We happen to do that with code, but producing code is counterproductive. A, a way that I saw a while back that I really like to view the problem. Aeronautical engineers don't view the, the job as how much aluminum or titanium can we use? They view the job as how little can we use to get someone safely from place to place, right? And you get all of these snarky sorts of quotes of every line of code is a liability and it's not lines created, it's lines spent, which you know is, doesn't really feel snarky. But there's a truth in that, which is the goal is not code. The goal is problems solved. And like you happen to do that through code, but all of the code that you have spent is a liability and is a thing that you're going to have to maintain is a carrying cost. Do you look at it that way of, hey, we're here to solve problems because it will set a developer up with a better mindset to make better decisions? Or what do you think that type of mindset does for software developer? I, ideally, I prefer the term software engineer because even when we just talk about developer, like the idea there is that your goal is I'm developing a new thing, whereas engineering being the whole like life cycle and the whole management and the like, I'm just going to keep it running, tune this up a little bit. You spend a lot more time 
if you really internalize this, I think you spend a lot more time reading and talking and answering questions, asking questions, probably answering questions, and finding the existing system that almost does what you need and then making a couple small tweaks instead of the much more satisfying, spend three weeks and build an entirely new thing. And then you have two competing solutions and a problem. And that's really what I want to encourage more. And certainly Googlers have a lot to, to learn on that front. We're as guilty of that as anybody. But that is the mindset that, that we usually want to encourage. Yeah, all good. We're all here to improve. Moving on to our next major pillar, which is scale. Hiram, I'd like to start with you on, on this one. How does Google think about scale and why is it a major pillar? When I've talked to people in the past in you know, university recruiting and different things like this, I actually would talk to them and say, like, lots of Google's problems aren't actually problems of kind. They're problems of scale. Email existed before Gmail did. Right? Web search existed before Google search did. You can pick a number of different technologies that existed before the Google thing came along. But no one had a gigabyte of email storage before Gmail came along or whatever the obscene number was at the time. And really, these are problems of scale. And so when I think about things like migrating, so anyone can change a line of code and change 10 lines of code. But how about changing 10,000 lines of code or 100,000 lines of code in a reasonable time? And those are kinds of the problems that we start thinking about working on systems of this size. And, and really what this means too is, is if you scale over time, so we're not just talking about like a snapshot at a specific moment, we're talking about how does the system evolve over time? How does it scale over time? And again, if you're working in cloud computing, if you're running, like you're gonna be thinking about these things. I have to provision more machines for the future, for the growth of my service. I have to provision more network. Hopefully I'm getting more traffic into my service, these kinds of things. We sometimes don't think a lot about the provisioning of people, right? If my code base doubles in size, do I need, twice as many release engineers? Do I need twice as many kind of like operations people to keep the version control system running or maintaining the libraries or the build system or all these kinds of things that are fundamental to the process of building software? Do like, how does that scale, right? In the concept of, of people effort, right? The amount of effort required um, to, to make that happen. And really the key point is that if you can't scale sublinear, if you scale at or above the rate at which your code base is growing, then at some point you're going to consume all your resources just standing still, right? Like you're not gonna be able to work on features because you'll be spending all of your time just doing kind of maintenance work. And so the core insight here is make sure that you build your processes in a way that allows them to scale sublinearly. So that when the size of the code base doubles and you're doing releases three times as, as often, that you don't have to have six times as many engineers. So you just you can build tools and processes in that in that in place to make that happen. Yeah, like similarly, it, it is about people. Uh, but similarly, another way, uh, another example. If I was, you know, working at a place with five or ten engineers and was the in-house C plus guru, I would spend a lot of time pair programming with people and spend a lot of time like doing the detailed code reviews on all of their things. And that would probably be the most effective way to use that expertise. Since there's 12,000 of us instead, if I want to make people understand a thing, it's not effective for me to go to every engineer or every TL. Like I need to write it down and then I need to have systems in place where I can try to get that written version of it surfaced at the right time. And so we're just gonna approach the problem in an entirely different fashion because of the realities of there's just a lot of people here. Yeah, some of this, 
I keep going back to a mindset. I, okay, let's not consider ourselves software developers. We're software engineers and scale at this magnitude that, that Google does. It almost feels like I need to step back, take a holistic approach, maybe look at these problems from a few different perspectives that I might not be used to. Is that a process that you go through? Do you sit down? Let me look at it from this angle and that angle, or like, how, how does was that an evolution for you guys? How does it work? I think we fell into it. <laughs> like, a lot of it was like the one thing that Google is very good at is not accepting how everyone else does it as the one true way to do it. Like, we will we are pretty good at that that clearly isn't going to scale as we get twice as large. We're going to have to find something else. And I'm not sure that the thing we're going to find is going to be better, but at least we'll learn something. But it is pretty reactive in a lot of cases. And I don't think it is, I don't think it is nearly as clean and elegant and thought out as it might look from the outside. Like there's a lot of stumbling around going on here, but yeah it's, yeah, it's easy to look like most historical things where we can look back and say it's a foregone conclusion that this event followed from this other event. And it's not often the case that the people in the moment at the time had any idea what they were doing. I mean, that they were intentionally working towards the, that specific outcome. And I think for us, it's been a decade of kind of trial and error and finding out what works and finding out what doesn't and trying to collect the things that work and institutionalize them and move on to the next thing. There's, it's, it's not as straight a path as many people think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One point that I do want to hit on, I think, Hiram, you might have mentioned it around the sublinear resources. So I'll throw the question to Titus, because I think it's one of the major, you know, points in the book here. But can you talk about consumption of sublinear resources? What does that mean? What is that all about? Let's see. The, the most important way to look at that, I think, is for all of the processes that go into writing your software, how often do you need to do something that is scaling in terms of the number of engineers? And so like in a very small like company, it might be fine to be like, hey, I'm going to send an email to every engineer and say, no one check anything in for an hour. I'm about to do a big crazy thing. We don't have that option. It is maybe once a month that an email goes out to all eng to say, hey, there was a bug, make sure you don't release between these points. And the rest of the time, everything is just has to be like done with no coordination. And building it or whatever coordination is there has to be purely technical. And we are vastly more willing to spend a ton of compute resources in order to ensure that we don't need a constant or growing fraction of our human effort to be spent like doing the same tasks. So for example, uh, a story that I tell in version control, companies that I worked at before I was at Google had not rare sort of policy of lots of teams had long lived dev branches. And then we would have a meeting you know, once a week to be like, okay, which teams get to merge this week? And then there was one guy whose job was do that merge and retest everything and see what's actually still passing and see if that merged in. And when we got up to 200 people on that project, one guy was not enough to do the merge. And so we have all of this overhead of like testing and resyncing and rebasing and all of this stuff. And instead, Google realized, 
there's no way that this scales because even adding a second guy to that, like now those two guys have to communicate and coordinate. Like this is not going to be lit. instead. So we follow, we have this whole mono repo thing. Everyone's building it head and we replace all of that, like merge and everything with continuous integration and better unit tests and auto rollback and feature flags and experiment. And, and it touches everything from pre-submit testing all the way out through production, like when you toggle which features are enabled in your release, but all of that code is there. And that changes the model entirely into something that is that feels much more risky and chaotic, but in fact, actually works much more smoothly. It's, it's the difference between riding your bike slowly and riding your bike quick. There's a dynamic stability in, in a, if you get this right. I also would point out, like, I love the build systems chapter in the book. That was great. That was one of the first chapters we got. And we were like, if they're all this good, then we are set. It was a wonderful chapter. And because it really steps through the evolution of the build system. First, we start off with a giant make file. And, and eventually, like with most things that scale, you have to get to a point at which you say, like, there's a clean break somewhere, right? There's a, we just have to rethink the problem. Like the problem has shifted so much that we have to rethink it from a completely different perspective. Because the, the make file solution that you know, we had a make file, and we had a thing that uh, generator that made make files, and then we had a thing that kind of like generated the generator. And at some point, this is just not going to work. This is going to scale super linearly. And so we had to step back and say, what problem are we actually trying to solve, right? And it was we trying to build our software in a scalable way. And from that discussion, out popped at the time was a radically different kind of build system in Bazel, right? With open sources as Bazel and other kinds of declarative type of build systems that actually constrain what engineers are allowed to do. And that that is a completely different kind of build experience. People coming into Google are like, where's the make file? Eh, we actually don't have one. This is how actually you declare your build and you make it work. But at the end of the day, like this solution has scaled much more than the make file based solution would scale in any type of way. It's because we had to make that clean break between this is this old solution just does not work anymore. Yeah, I think what, what we've seen, what you're saying is we have these problems of time and scale as we shift left towards giving developers more freedom or autonomy. That's typically a good thing. This has been a really insightful, interesting, amazing conversation. Hiram and Titus, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. We know that your book is out there, Software Engineering at Google, Lessons Learned from Programming Over Time. So everyone go out there and uh, buy that book. And actually, you don't even need to go buy the book. We have just recently announced that it, the electronic version is freely available to everyone under Creative Commons license. So we'll include a link for that too. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that important information. Also, be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community where we keep this type of conversation going all week long. You can find information about everything we talked about in the links below. And everyone, have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Uh -huh.